Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Imagine with me, and hopefully you're just imagining and not living it, but imagine with me that you have a severe cold. And so you go to the doctor, and uh, the doctor gives you a prescription of some kind, uh, like an antibiotic, and it helps you get over it. And a couple of months go by, and you find yourself now with some sort of stomach ache. I don't know, you're having gut issues. And so you... Go to the doctor again, and he gives you the same thing, the same prescription, an antibiotic. And uh, you're kind of walking out of the office, and you're thinking, this is kind of weird. And you, you run into a friend of yours, and, and, and they're there for some migraines, and you ask what the doctor prescribed for them. You kind of meet them out in the parking lot on the way out, and they say, yeah, the doctor gave me this. And, and you think, that's weird. He gave me that too. You know, and so you... You kind of question it, right? But you go ahead and take it, and you get over it, and you just kind of wonder if it helped at all. You're not really sure. And then a couple of more months go by, and you, you do what everybody's doing in our church family these days. You break your arm, right? And you hurt your arm somehow. You fall off your horse. And so you go to the doctor, and they put it in a cast or whatever, and, and, then, and then they give you this prescription, same antibiotic. You're like, what in the world is going on? At this point, you're thinking... I need to find a new doctor, right? Because everybody knows you can't treat every malady the same way. And you can't treat every person the same way, right? You're going to require different prescriptions. Some people uh, get, get hurt. They have different things. You, you, you give different prescriptions. And for different people, because some people can't take the same prescription as the other person, right? And so I think that's a good picture this morning of what I want to talk about. Uh, When it comes to understanding how we were created to worship, to engage with God in worship, and that's really the definition for worship that I've been drawn to in my studies on worship this year, is to think of worship as a continual, relational, engaging with God. It's not just something that we do uh, for an hour on Sunday. It is something that we do 24-7, 365, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Worship is an all-day, everyday, relational communion with God. It occurs as we bring our lives, we worship as we bring our lives into a proper orientation with the true and living God. You know, and we're living in response to him, engaging with him, him to us through his word and us to him as we obey his word and it's it's a relationship. But uh, worship also has both a private and corporate element to it. You have both personal and communal communal elements to worship. And we see a lot of the personal side of worship in the Psalms, don't we? As David expresses 
the deep things that are going on in his heart and mind to God. He's worshiping God personally. You actually get to see that man's worship life. You get a view into, into his heart. And uh, worship is also corporate in that sometimes it looks like we're doing this morning. We're coming together as a church family, as the body of Christ, and we are worshiping God together. Some of these psalms, like the psalm we're going to be in today, was David's own personal reflection going on in his heart. And then it's actually written for the God's people to sing together. So even though it's written from a personal perspective, it's something to praise God together with uh, in music. And so uh, today, though, I want to emphasize the personal side of worship. I want to emphasize the personal side of worship. There uh, is obviously a danger, I think, in over-personalizing worship, maybe forgetting the the communal side of worship, gathering with God's people, or maybe just drifting away from God's word and having your own little worship style that just isn't biblical at all. But um, I do think it's worth our time in our study of, of worship this year to consider how we are created uniquely with what I want to think of as a worship temperament, we could say. Uh, we're created all of us, right, individually with unique uh, gifts, talents, personalities, interests, and I think that that bleeds over into our life of worship. You see, worship, again, brings healing to our lives because that's what we're made to do, and when we're not doing it, our life's a dumpster fire when we're not worshiping God and we're worshiping other things. But we find healing in worship in different Ways One person might connect with God uh, more through music, another one more through creation, um, some through intellect, some through uh, service. But, and we all, obviously, those all overlap in our lives to some extent, but some of us, again, are going to have uh, different ways that we primarily worship. And I think it's helpful to understand what that is. Um, think of it in the context of a family. A family with multiple kids. I mean, even just two kids, right? So you, you know very early on after you have those kids that every kid is different. Everybody's a little bit different, right? You got one kid that he just loves to read and loves to talk, that sort of thing. And then you've got another kid that... Uh, so the one kid's a thinker. The other kid's a doer, right? They just like to work with their hands. And so you're going to spend time sometimes with those kids differently. Now, if you just say, hey, let's go out for ice cream, right? You're all spending time together doing the same thing, right? Every kid loves ice cream. But the one kid is going to want to read a book with you, and you're going to want to read it together and talk about it together, especially if they're an older kid with that uh, interest. The other kid, right, they might want to work on a car together. They want to work with their hands. They just want to be there. You don't even have to talk a lot. Let's just do this together. Let's, here's a young kid. Let's just build this sandcastle together. And then let's crush it, like, like Godzilla or something. Uh, so there's, there's just two different kids, two different personalities. And uh, you connect with them differently. And that's great, isn't it? 
It, it would be terrible if we were all the same way. If God used a cookie cutter for each one of us. And uh, point being, we're all part of a larger family, right? The family of God. And I believe that our Heavenly Father tends to connect with each one of us in slightly different ways. Again, there's overlap, but we have worship temperaments, the way I understand it. And so simply stated, my goal today in today's message is that as a result of this message, you'll either start thinking about that, thinking about how to feed your soul personally through worship, or maybe just understand your, your, yourself better, more clarity on how, how you worship. So as we go through Psalm 19, I'm going to talk about different ways that we do worship, and uh, just think about the ones that you lean towards. Um, Psalm 19 is a great passage to spend our time in as we think along these lines. Uh, a psalm, the word psalm just means praise or sing or music, but the psalms are not just about singing, are they? Uh, we learn so much about what a life of worship looks like from the Psalter. The Psalter is the collection of psalms, but uh, the whole thing. But uh, a life of worship, you learn in the psalms what the heart of worship looks like, what the posture of worship might look like, uh, what the language and the practices of worship look like. And uh, this psalm in particular is one of confident praise. There's different types of psalms. This one is a confident praise psalm, and it was meant for corporate worship. It was uh, written, you'll notice, um, for the choir director. So Psalm uh, 19, we're going to see first the, the, the praise that we should give God for speaking through his works, the works of his hands. Look at verse 1 through 6. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So uh, praise is given in these first six verses to God for the work of his hands, and specifically the, the heavens, right? The whole earth is obviously the work of his hands. We are the work of his hands, but the, the, the emphasis here is on the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the starry sky. Uh, God is an all-powerful creator God. Look, that's the word that he uses for God in verse 1. It's El. It's a reference to the all-powerful creator God. Uh, as you see in Genesis 1, the same word, the El. But uh, God fashioned the heavens in his handiwork. They're a master peace. They're the work of his hands. They're not an accident. God actually used his hands to, metaphorically, right, but to create the heavens. He fashioned them. They're his masterpiece. And you have to think that the man who wrote this psalm, King David, 
I was once a shepherd boy. He spent a lot of time out in the country sleeping under the stars. He wasn't blinded by city lights, didn't have, you know, skyscrapers blocking his view, different buildings. He's out in the middle of the open, and he loved to look at the sky. He loved to watch the sunrises, the sunsets, the stars at night, and reflect on God there. And uh, it's his artwork. That's what he's praising God for. It's the work of his hands. There's an artist behind all of that. How many times do we think of a sunset as a painting? You know, um, we should praise the artist for that, like for the sunset, for the for the stars, because they remind us of the glory of God. Verse one. They reveal his power. They reveal his glory. You think the sunset is glorious? Just wait until you're in the presence of God, right? Blinding glory. Just amazing glory. I have some of the pictures from the storm on Friday night over Scott's Bluff and Mitchell area. Look at that. Look at those the, the towering clouds, the mammatus clouds here. There's some of the most that's one of the most powerful storms a person is going to see in their life. Right? Just incredible display, I think, of glory and power. You learn from creation kind of what God's like. He reveals his power in creation, right? So think about that storm. That storm is, is big and, and powerful. That storm can bless. It can bring rain and bless. Or it can bring hail and just utter destruction, right? The tornadoes that came out of that thing. God's like that too, right? He can be merciful or he can be judgment, depending on if you've placed your faith in Christ or not. He's going to come to you in mercy or judgment, right? Grace or wrath. A storm can be both ways too. So, uh, to amplify, though, what David's saying here, let's note that when David speaks of the Son as the, the bridegroom or the strong person, the athlete running their race, and no one can hide from its heat. He's actually using some figures of speech here that pagans used to describe the sun. And they worshiped the sun as a sovereign, as their god. And so think about this. In contrast to the sun god worshipers who called the sun their god, made the sun their god, David is saying, yes, the sun is, the, the sun is strong, the sun is powerful, but it actually is a servant of God. You think that's powerful, right? Just think about the God who created it, right? He's even more powerful. The Son just carries out his bidding. So how foolish then, David's kind of pointing out here, to serve or worship. That's the same, you can use this, the same word for serve in the Bible sometimes is translated worship. They don't know what to do. Worship or serve, it's the same thing. So the Son serves and worships God. How foolish for us to serve, worship the Son. You, you worship the creator of the, the Son, right? The Son is a reason to worship God. And so let's just think now about the two different ways that we can learn to worship from these six verses. Uh, number one, that was that we worship God through music. This is a psalm after all. It was made to be sung. Uh, as one person said, it's impossible to overstate the importance of music in worship. That's typically what 
we think of when we think of worship. We think about coming to church on Sunday and, and singing, and then we sit down and listen to the Bible, and we don't think of that as worship. It's just the singing element. But uh, every day we do, every Sunday we do worship by singing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, we were made to sing. All of us were made to sing. Even if you have the voice of a crow or a cat, uh, you can make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? That's why I sit up front all the time, too. My voice is terrible. And then I don't have to disrespect the person in front of me. I'm just kidding. But just make a joyful noise. But I will say that on an individual basis, is it not true that God has wired some people for worshiping God in music? Right? Just, that's just the way that some people primarily connect with God. They love it. They always have a song in their head. They always have headphones on, right? They're listening to music. They're humming a tune. It doesn't matter where they are. When they're in the car, they don't want to listen to some big theology podcast. They don't want to listen to a, a sermon. They don't want to listen to a book. What do they want to do? They want to sing. They just want to make music in their hearts to the Lord. And uh, we see in the Old Testament that God even wired some people. It's in Chronicles. You can read it. God even wired certain individuals for worship music, for composing music, playing and singing. He, he made some. He wired some to build the tabernacle. He gave them, you know, hands to build. And then he gave some the ability to play instruments and to sing. And then David even set up people to train people to who had that, who were wired that way to be even better at it. You know, so uh, you see just not everybody's exactly the same. You know, one of the things I love about having Jacob around here in the summer, sorry I use your name, but uh, so much lately. But I love having him around here in the summer because I'll be sitting at my desk and I'll be typing or whatever and I just hear Jacob over here singing. He's walking through the halls or whatever. He's just singing, humming a tune. You just don't catch me doing that. Not that I haven't, but he just can't help it. It just doesn't seem like he can help it. Um, me, I, you know, I, in my old church, I played that cajon over there, that, that box. And, uh, you know, for a time, our church just didn't have a drummer. And so that's where I was. And I could keep a steady beat. But the whole time I felt like I was a chair that was being used as a ladder. You know what I mean? Like, it worked, but, you know, it just wasn't my thing. And so as soon as some other drummers realized we needed percussion, it was like they stepped up and it was like, okay, I'm out of here. You know, that's kind of how it worked. But I wouldn't mind playing it again. But, again, it's not primary. There's differences in people. But secondly, we worship also primarily through creation, some of us. Uh, we connect with God. Some of you guys, you really connect with God through nature and through the outdoors. Why? Because it points us to God. That's what it was designed to do. Nature reflects the glory of God. We call this the doctrine of natural or general revelation. How God reveals himself to us, to everybody in the world, through creation and thus conscience, basically. Uh, you look at verses 1 through 4, even though the heavens don't speak with any sort of speech or words, not, it's not vocal, they're still declaring 
the glory of God and the works of God. So it's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Something that has no voice speaks. They declare from day to day, sun up to sundown, 24, 365, the glory of God. Verse 4 says their line, their voice, goes out through all the earth, telling everybody about his power and his majesty. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about this too. He says that God has revealed his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, so plainly to us through creation that on judgment day, no one is going to have any excuse for their sinful rebellion against him. See, Romans says we actually have to suppress the truth about an eternal creator God, holy eternal creator God. We have to suppress it intentionally. That's how clear it is to us. And so that on judgment day, when we go and we say, oh, I didn't know God exists, God's going to say, yeah, yeah, I revealed myself to you. You have no excuse. So we all know this, but we suppress it. And therefore, man's condemnation is just. And then after that, Paul goes into the gospel, right? All are condemned, therefore, all in Christ are justified. But, uh, hey, Paul, in Romans chapter 10, even uses this exact psalm to prove the condemnation of the Jews who didn't believe. So, no excuses. We're without excuse. God has made it evident within us because it's been evident to us in creation. It's another oxymoron. What's invisible has been clearly seen. But I want to remind us of the words of this classic hymn, How Great Thou Art. Listen to this again, now that we're thinking about natural revelation. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. So let me paraphrase that. When I walk through the woods, when I hear the birds sing, when I look at the majestic mountains, and I feel the gentle breeze, powerful mountains, gentle breeze, I think, how great thou art. You think, wow, God is great. And he's great. When we think about the infinite universe out there, right? Immeasurable, uncountable stars. You cannot count them all. And you think, like Isaiah 40 says, that God measures the universe with the span of the palm of his hand. You think, how great the heart. It's amazing. During the French Revolution, um, Jean Bon St. Andre, a, a revolutionist, said to a peasant, he said, I will have all your steeples pulled down that you may no longer have any objects by which you may be reminded of your old superstitions. And the peasant replied, you cannot help but leaving us the stars. I like that. It's no wonder being out in creation sparks many of us to praise God and worship God. And uh, I find it unfortunate that we're born in such a sterile environment, you know? 
born into a sterile hospital, boxed home in the car. We live our lives inside plastered walls with screens in front of our faces. Screen time is a lot of our time. <laughs> My encouragement, I guess, our, our, our appreciation for the creation is stunted, to say the least, because of this. And so my encouragement to us is to spend time out outdoors this summer without the devices. I was so thankful I didn't have service up there at Angostura last week. I was thankful for my poor carrier, internet wireless carrier, because I didn't have service, which meant I'm just going to leave the phone at home. I don't have any pictures of fish. That's another reason, because I just didn't have my phone. But you know what? My screen time was way down, cut in half. I didn't miss a thing. Didn't miss a thing. And I'll say, too, that, you know, sunsets and starry skies have, they've been known to stop me in my tracks. I mean, sometimes we get home at night, and I look up, and it's just like, the house can stay locked, because I just want to look up. You know, I, I would farm, and I used to farm, and I'd get towards sunset, and I just, Shut the tractor down. I didn't even care. Just stop the tractor. I'd sit on the tractor weights and sing hymns to God as I was out there just watching the sunset. You know, that's... I guess I'm really drawn to this worship through creation thing, right? But some of you are like me. You're stirred to worship through creation. That's where you connect. Hunting, fishing, gardening, hiking camping maybe it's just sitting on the porch listening to the birds sing you know they don't just chirp do they they sing it's amazing maybe it's just laying on the green grass watching clouds roll by you guys do that anymore you guys childish enough to do that when's the last time you did that maybe that's where you find yourself longing to be if you want to know how you worship, how you prefer to worship. Think about where you long to be, especially when things get tight and stale in your life and cold and mechanical. Think about where you want to go, right? Some of you guys, you want to be in God's country, as we call it. Whenever my routine, my devotional time gets too routine-ish, a little too stale. That's where I find myself going, out into creation or maybe out in the garden. I got to get out. You know, the books get stale. Listening to sermons gets stale. I got to get out and, and worship God in creation. But uh, at the same time, uh, I would uh, caution us against using, you know, creation as an escape from Christian duty. So you have to have some balance there too. But... Uh, yeah, obviously this is one of my favorite subjects, but you're talking to a guy who came to Christ through both. I came to Christ in a tree stand with natural revelation all around me, reading special revelation in my lap. And uh, that's basically how I came to Christ. But special revelation is where we're going to turn now to verses, in verses 7 through 10. This is the, the revelation of God's word and how God speaks to us through his word. Uh, we might enjoy natural revelation uh, very much, and we can learn some things about God through natural revelation, but we cannot know God personally or be saved apart from special revelation. See, the skies can speak, 
but they can't tell the whole story. The skies can speak of his glory, but they can't speak of his grace. And so that's where we're turning now. Notice um, in verse uh, 7, there's a different name for God used here. It's not God anymore. It's, it's the name for God that comes from the more personal Genesis account, and starting in chapter uh, 2, I think it is. And it's Yahweh, Lord. That's the personal covenant name for God. So you're from general revelation and God, everybody knows that God, to Yahweh, the personal covenant-making God in Scripture, where we really get to know him. Uh, Verse 7, the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They're righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of honeycomb. So, a lot of times the comments made, why, why doesn't God speak to us, right? I just want to hear from God. And I'm often reminded of this cartoon where a man is saying to God, Lord, speak to me. And then there's this giant hand that comes out of the clouds, hands him a Bible, right? It's so comical. It's so comical, but it's so true, too, because God has spoken to nature, but he's spoken even more clearly, surely, in his word, in the Bible. In fact, God has spoken so much that people, even Christians are intimidated by how much he has spoken to us, right? There's so much here that we don't even read it. We're intimidated by it. Think about that. Next time someone says, why doesn't God speak? It's like he has. You just are intimidated by the size of his book or you don't like what he says in his book. So you don't really want to hear him anyway. But um, David praises Yahweh here for his word. Uh, The law, the Torah, which David had in his day, the first five uh, books of the Bible, and they're worth rejoicing over there, over because they, you find the core of truth in it. Uh, even the core of Christian truth you can find in the first five books of the Bible. It's fundamental. Life-giving, life-ordering truths and principles that we need to know are found in, in God's word. Um, who we are, who God is. And uh, the, the context here amplifies the text again. Think about this. In contrast to the pagan um, polytheistic, which, like, you know, the pagans, they worshiped multiple gods, tons of gods to choose from. Uh, in contrast to that and the confusing religions of the ancient Near East, uh, there was always, where there was always lack of assurance and, and lack of understanding what the God had demanded of you to do, David praised God, Yahweh, for his clear instruction. See, if I'm, if I'm an ancient pagan worshiper, I'm going to a god and I'm going to do all sorts of different things in order to get an oracle and then I'm going to not really know precisely what to do and which god do I even start with in the first place, right? And this god is going to be immoral and even worse than human beings in many, many cases. If they just weren't nice gods, right? Because they're the gods of man's imagination. But... 
Imagine that compared to the words of Yahweh, which are sure, they're right, they're pure, they're true, and they're enduring, just like Yahweh himself. So how assuring, right, for David to know, I can forget all these confusing, worthless gods and have God's sure word right here in my lap. It's an amazing thing. Yahweh's word, he says, is sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold. And I pray that that's our um, understanding of the Bible. Sweeter, sweeter than honey, more valuable than gold. Which, right, the priciest thing in David's day. But it leads us to the next principle in that we worship through the word as well. We worship through the word. We can't underestimate the importance of music and worship. How much less God's word, which is where we find music on how to worship, that worship that's proper, you know? Um, God's word is where we learn how to worship acceptably. We worship God as we read and hear and apply God's word. We get to know him personally through his word in a way that we can't through creation. We learn the gospel through his word. We're transformed, sanctified by the truth of his word. And as you sit here this morning and you take in the word of God, you are worshiping, even right now. You're giving yourself to God in worship and, and subjecting yourself to his word, submitting to it. Um, in a world of deceit and despair, you are worshiping in spirit and in truth right now. This brings up another way of worship that we don't often think about, though, and that we can worship through our intellect. We worship with intellect or through intellect, with our mind. With our thoughts and reflections, David's going to talk about meditating on God's word. We're to worship, we're to serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul. What's the third one? Mind and strength. The mind set on the spirit pleases God. We're to take every thought captive. David's going to pray that his words and his thoughts would be pleasing to God. I think it was, it was either Schaefer or C.S. Lewis. He said, Christianity is the thinking man's religion. How true is that? There's an old Jewish saying that said, study is the highest form of worship. How do you really know how to worship if you weren't a student of his word? Some people, I would say, though, also worship with their intellect more than others. You ever notice that? They tend to listen to sermons more than music. They can't read enough systematic theology or discuss theology enough. They feel closer to God when they learn something new about him or they can articulate that to others. When they're preaching, when they're teaching, they feel closer to God. They like the big words. You know, sometimes we give people a hard time because they use big words. So there's some people who like that. They're made that way. Think about it. We're not all the same. I am really, really, really thankful for the people out there, the scholars, the professors, the 
Bible teachers who can teach us about God from his word. And they write books. They write commentaries. They write systematics. You know, they're a gift, Ephesians says, to the church. So don't give those guys a hard time. They're just using their minds like God made them to do. Isn't that great? How freeing, right, to understand how different we are and how we can worship God differently. One of the greatest thinkers and writers on the subject of worship was A.W. Tozer. You ever read his stuff? He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he always wrote with such originality. He said this, God tells us to make a sanctuary of our thoughts in which he can dwell. You ever thought about, can God dwell in my thoughts right now? He treasures our pure and loving thoughts, our meek and charitable and kindly thoughts. These are the thoughts like his own. As God dwells in your thoughts, you will be worshiping and God will be accepting. He will be smelling the incense of your high intention, even when the cares of life are intense and activity is all around you. You know who's a good picture of that? It's in your devotional this week in your bulletin. Uh, Mary. Just sitting there, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. She's worshiping. Activity all around her. Martha's all intense, trying to get all the preparations made, and Martha's just there, taking in the word. Mary's taking in the word. That's good stuff, right? But uh, let's read now the last portion of Psalm 19, verses 11 through 14, where you see a prayer of obedience to God. And prayer is a form of worship, too. But... Think about this. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. He's talking about the commands in his word. Your slave is warned through the word. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So think about what just happened here. David, he looks up at the stars. He looks up at the heavens, and he says, Wow, the glory of God. It's amazing. And then he reads God's word. He looks down at the word, and he says, Wow, the grace of God. And then he looks, where does he look now? He looks within. And he says, blah. <laughs> Basically, who am I? Right? Look at the bright lights of the sky. Look at the purity and cleanness of God's word. And then I'm dirty. And that's exactly, I'm a sinner. That's what David's saying. I'm dirty. I'm a sinner. I fall so short. But that's exactly what Revelation does. It's accomplished its work in David. Revelation, general, special, shows us who God is. And when we understand who God is, then we understand who we are. And David understands who he is as a sinner and that he needs to repent. Do you see that? It's amazing where this psalm takes you in this journey here. Um, it moves 
David to repentance and a closer, closer worship walk with God. Look how David longs to obey God. He knows that if we aren't, if we aren't, if we aren't obeying, we aren't worshiping. David asked God to reveal his hidden faults, bring some sins to my attention that I'm not even aware of so that they won't rule over me. That's how fallen we are. We sin in ways we don't even know. He has to reveal them to us. And you get the sense in here and throughout the Psalms that David has done life his way before. And that life is like a dumpster fire. Okay? But he also knows the reward of doing life God's way. One life is a dumpster fire. One life brings reward. And so he's thankful for the warning that God's word brings to him. So you, the world, guys, the world is, gonna, is so deceitful. They, will, they are so good at selling sin. And they show you the shiny side of it and how much fun you can have and all the pleasure you can have with your sin. And... It, they will not tell you how destructive it is in your life. How it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your relationships, your marriage, your family. It's going to make you addicted. You're not going to have any control. And it's going to wreck you, right? That's what sin does. And so David's praising God for his word in that it warns him and it says, uh-uh, that sin might look good, but not so fast. Right? Because here's where it ends. It ends in disaster. So God's word brings warning, and with it, when we obey it, restoration and reward, even everlasting reward when we put our faith in Christ, our rock and our redeemer. But our last point here, it's already been stated, is that we worship through obedience. We aren't to know God just with our lips. Um, we are to worship with our obedience if we only know God with our lips and not obedience, we're taking his name in vain and we are not truly worshiping. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2 says we're to yield our lives. Romans 6, 2 also says you're to, we're to yield our lives as living sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to him, right? Members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Tozer wrote this, he said, worship must be total. It must involve the whole you. And that's why you must prepare to worship God. And that preparation is not always pleasant. There may be revolutionary changes which must take place in your life. If there is to be true and blessed worship, something in your life must be destroyed, eliminated. The gospel of Jesus Christ is certainly positive and constructive, but it must be destructive in some areas, dealing with and destroying certain elements that cannot remain in a life pleasing to God. And he says this, How can we hope to worship God acceptably when these evil elements remain in our natures, undisciplined, uncorrected, unpured, or unpurged and unpurified? That's a great statement. I'd encourage you to, I don't know, meditate on later. When we worship, we worship when we obey. And that's going to look like a lot of different forms. 
It might look like giving. It might look like praying, serving others, sharing the gospel, answering his call, just being who God made you to be. Uh, you're just going to obey in many ways. And uh, some people, they recharge that way. That's how they worship is through practical obedience. Some people just love serving. They don't want to be alone, right? These are people people. They want to serve. They want to confront with the gospel in a good way. They want to, they want to give. They want to, they want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and that's when they feel like they're connecting with God. And I wish I could spend more time on that, but it's, it's, it's time to wrap it up. But I will say, too, uh, that I couldn't help think of that famous sprinter. You remember his name, Eric Liddell? Think about this guy and how he was worshiping when he was running. Here's what he said. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he, and he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He's worshiping when he's running in the races, the Olympics, I think it was. They made a movie about him, but that's pretty much the only quote I remember. He says, I, I feel God's pleasure when I run. Well, in summary, I just challenge us to think about our worship temperament. Do you even believe we have one now? I must be honest that I find in me all of these, but some more than others. I can't say I feel God's pleasure when I run. But maybe you do. Maybe you really love to connect with God through music. Maybe it's creation, whatever it is. Um, it can be extremely helpful to be aware of what that is. And uh, if you don't know where to start, you might ask yourself, where do I go to connect with God? Is it nature? Is it scripture? Is it singing? Is it serving? Um, is it a place? You know, I find it interesting that Judas, on the night that he betrayed Jesus, left the upper room while Judas was gone. Jesus and the disciples left the upper room too. And when Judas and the soldiers came back and he wasn't in the upper room anymore, he knew exactly where to go. He knew when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane to spend time with the Father, to connect with the Father. That's where he went all the time. He visited it often. And so where's your... Gethsemane. Where do you go to connect, reconnect? That's my prayer for us this summer. I've been praying it every day that we would individually reconnect with God this summer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the revelation of your word and the revelation of nature that you've given us. And I pray that both of these would lead us this morning to do what David did, and that is to cry out to you in repentance, acknowledging our sins and our need for a Redeemer, and that is Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would think of worship not just as something we do on Sunday, but as something that we do 24-7, 365, that we would let our thoughts even be a place where you can dwell. And we would be worshiping just that way. 
Lord, if we're going to do this, it's only going to be by your spirit. If we're going to be worshipers, sensitive, that sensitive. And so we, we come to you now in, in dependence upon your spirit, asking uh, for that, that help. Just like David did, he came to you for help. Lord, help me reveal my sins, reveal my flaws and foibles and help me to be a worshiper of you and that our words and our actions, our thoughts would all be pleasing, acceptable to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.